Hello, everyone. Welcome to the React Native Show podcast, which is brought to you by Callstack, a total software engineering consultancy. In today's topic, we're going back to the roots. Uh, usually on our episodes, we discuss a lot of different things about engineering, but we are mostly focused about React and React Native. So for the past few episodes, we've been discussing React Native for TVs, React Native for VR, uh, both episodes dropped uh, in December, I think. And today we're going to stitch both topics together and talk about React multi-platform and code sharing in React Native. So to help me do that, I invited a wonderful guest from London, from Edinburgh, apparently, uh, Mo Javad, who is the head of mobile at Theodore UK, and who is also an organizer of React Native London. Hello, Mo. How are you? Great to be with you, Lukash. Um, yeah, I'm very excited to be here today. Um, like you mentioned, up and down in the UK between London and Edinburgh. Uh, very cold this time of year, um, but very warm with the excitement of speaking about React Native and talking about Universal React Native soon. Yeah, awesome. So. Um... Let's start. Let's start maybe with some context and history and theory about multi-platform and code sharing in general. So can you brief us uh, on how how it's been done for the past like decades in IT industry? Yeah, I, I think it's a really interesting kind of concept um, with this whole multi-platform idea. Let, let's go to roots. And I want to kind of like phrase this in the most like primitive way and then maybe we can build up from there so uh if you've ever seen the the, the project management triangle have you ever seen that Lukash? yeah yeah so it's, it's you've got scope cost and time and to me when you're building an application let's say you have a web team and you've got an ios native team and you've got an android native team maybe you want to support you know microsoft windows phones back in the day um or whatever else you may have um you you have an elevated scope at that point because you know you're developing things four or five times in different technologies and so that severely either increases the cost and time that you have to develop those features um and or you need to reduce the scope right across these different platforms to keep things feature parity. and so then then you had these sort of like ideas of well wh why do we need to build these things multiple times like could we could we potentially reuse and try to use a technology that abstracts that away um and so you know, you had the likes of Xamarin, which we're not going to get into because why would you? Um, and, you know, there's these efforts to go down the multi-platform route. Um, and to me, the idea with multi-platform is maximizing your team's productivity. You don't want teams to be rebuilding things across different tech. You want them to be focused on the features that they're building. And you want to let the tech enable them to deliver at the best quality that they can, at the fastest speed that they can. And so this is why multi-platform is so exciting for me. I think the idea with multi-platform for me is enabling product companies to build products rather than grappling with tech and, and fighting with tech all the time. Yeah, so I remember when I first started uh, my programming career, I was an Android developer, and then I found out about the React XP, which is, we'll get into that later. And that uh, like opened my eyes when, when, when I saw that I could use some web technologies, web technologies, yeah. to try to write iOS and Android at the same time and web at the same time because that one was for web as well. Yeah. And then I d rediscovered React Native and then I rediscovered React Native web and all of that um, is a great concept, like you said. Uh, it has a lot of benefits and we've been discussing the benefits on this podcast. In each episode, we, yeah. we say about the... Um, the less cost uh, to to produce the application, the time to market uh, decrease, yep. stuff like that. It also has its drawbacks. So let's it talk about does. that as well. Let's not we, we let's not forget the. And and for, for, I I had a very similar journey to you, Lukas. So, so for me, I when I started development in, in my spare time back when I was in school, um, I I went through like Dreamweaver. I don't know if you remember Dreamweaver. They had this functionality where you could like take images, pop them into a website. And you could select parts of the image to highlight as a link. So that's where I started off. And then I was doing mobile. So I built my first iOS app in 
the objective C days before you know Swift was out, and it was absolutely painful, um, and I really did not enjoy that process. And you know, web was a lot more culpable for me. So going from React to React Native, you know, felt like a natural step, right? You've got this like really nice declarative way to define UIs. Everything is everything is a lot simpler, and you have to think about what you're building, not the instructions that you give the computer to execute the UI in a certain way that you want. And you know, I think that was a much nicer way to build UIs. The web felt a lot more deterministic um, to me, and uh, I think that was probably the sentiment that a lot of native developers had, right? Both on the iOS space and the Android space, you had these imperative models for designing UIs and it, it's it's not as convenient and it's nice, not as nice as a declarative approaches. So it was only natural that you also, see React. Also, there are two different models. So when you uh, split your scope into stories, into tasks to do, those may be different tasks for each platform. Those, yep. it's not even, if even if the UI is the same, the the splitting of the UI into smaller components mm -hmm. might not be. So yeah, like exactly. You know, your even your architecture is going to be fundamentally different depending on the platform. And so there, there's a lot of a lot of work that comes with that. And React, I think, was natural that people wanted to take that that paradigm and bring it to the native world. And I think that's where React Native was such a natural step to go, right? You've got such a great sort of agnostic UI library. Why not use it to build native apps in a much more convenient way for native developers? Um, yeah. So, yeah. So, I I forgot to mention in the beginning of his, uh, in the beginning of the episode. So sorry everyone that is listening. But the the structure for today episode is right now we'll be geeking for maybe ten minutes about the history and about the approaches that we could take to share uh, UI to share uh, business logic stuff like that to share styles maybe animations, and then. We want to jump into the to the business case that Mo recently had with the multi-platform streaming service, and uh, I also work in very similar project on our end. So we have very comparable uh, projects, and we can talk about some solutions, some particular solutions that we employ in in those um, business cases. So, yeah. sorry for that. Let's go back to geeking out about the context and history, and then we will uh, go into more specific um, use cases. Yeah. So context and history. So I already mentioned uh, React XP. Yeah. That 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 approach is one of the examples I would say of building a bridging layer between React for web and React Native for mobile. And yep. then having the, it has different components. They they are named differently, but under the hood, they really link to uh, proper like view from React Native and like diff from from web. Yep. Let's say, and that product that that library was used in Skype for I think for years. I'm not sure if it's still uh, if it's still the case. Probably not, but who knows. But it, that is one of the approaches. Yeah, and I think there was a lot of like attempts early on. I think people, you know, when React Native came out, you know, it was like, okay, let's go from web to to mobile, and we abstracted away to views, text, and sort of very very basic primitives that aren't you know platform specific. And then I think people were like, wait a second, can we just like take this and use it for web as well? Like this, surely we yeah. should be able to share this, right? Um, and I think React XP is definitely an example. I, I don't know if you remember React Primitives was another example. Um, and then styled components jumped into the mix for some reason and decided, you know what, we're going to see if we can make some primitives. And then there was the, the yeah. universal styled components UI library. I don't know if you remember that. Um, and then, you know, React Native for web was was kind of going along in, in, in here. And it was really cool. There was a lot of focus on sharing the visual layer, which I I, I think was, was fascinating. But, you know, we, we I think we started this whole like universal journey at Theodo back in... I want to say 2018 when we actually we actually started off on a project called uh, Mate.com. It's like a, a a furniture store on the web, um, and it's now owned by Next Fashion, I think. Um, and we 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 were trying to really explore this universal concept because you know they, they they knew they wanted to go React. They needed a full sort of transformation of their UI stack on mobile and web. And we we really dug into this concept of like, can we use React Native for web at that point in 2018, 2019. 
Um, and we looked at all of these different options. Um, and I, I think we played around with a lot. And one of the things that we were concerned about was like, is the visual layer ready yet? And we can talk about where that state is today. I think it's going to be very interesting. But, yeah. you know, the challenges back then that we had was, you know, SEO was a big worry. Uh, we, 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 we were not convinced that in a production app we could get good SEO. And I think a lot of people shared similar sentiments back then. Um, and SSR was hard to get working well with something like Next.js in the early days. It's gotten so much smoother now. Um, and there's so many adapters that kind of just do it for you. But, but it was... What did, uh, sorry, I, I missed that. What did you end up using back then? But so the, this is the this is what we ended up doing, which was we decided, you know what, we're not going to actually use the visual layer, but we oh, okay for a lighter version of a quote, quote, universal app where we said business logic, API calls, all of the sort of non-visual layer stuff, we opted to to share and we, we kind of isolated those into packages um, and the visual layer, we decided, you know what, this isn't something that we're going to be able to share in a way that we felt satisfied with was, was kind of ready for production at that point. Okay, um, so you, you know, basically in 2018, you you basically had the same design for web and for mo- let's say for mobile web version, and you build it twice: once in HTML, yeah. let's say React, and once in uh, React Native. Probably. Yeah, at that point, that's what we opted to do because we 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 really felt, in terms of something like especially an e-commerce platform where you really value something like search engine optimization where you really value like performance at a max. We just didn't think it was the point where that was going to warrant such an important sort of like uh, business case for these guys. Um, and so ultimately we, we really opted against it, but there's still so much to share, right? Like the, the visual layer is only a component of what you really need to share in a universal app. And I think the vision stuck with us, right? The vision was there's so much that you can share. There's so much that, that we want to share. And ultimately so- that's 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 what we've been working towards since then i always on this kind of episodes i always try to build up uh like a scale like a spectrum yeah. of possibilities uh in tvs we did this uh we did this in some other episodes as well so let's yeah. try to put all of those exam- all of those examples on a scale let's say on the left hand side you have Zero code sharing. <laughs> yeah, you have uh, native mobile iOS, uh, Android on the. You have uh, native web, let's say. Yeah. Um, and on the right hand side, you have share everything. So, yep. in case of your approach, you are sharing the business logic, uh, which is let's say some kind of Redux or something like that, and the API the stores, calls, the API calls, yeah. the constants, the configs, all of that stuff. But yeah. the visual layer stays separate. The visual uh, layer stays separate. I think it, uh, an important point for me to mention, though, which I, I think I, I missed, um, is there's certain things in the visual layer in terms of styling primitives, design tokens, that type of stuff that we we did still share as sort of like a config of sorts. But the rest of the like. The components themselves that was stuff that we opted not to share so yeah the, if you go into the spectrum it was kind of like very light react universe very light universal react type of uh, the what, spectrum is not linear it's not, not only i mentioned it's probably several different dimensions because like you said um the styles like the the how do i say that the design language of yeah. the product the is the same across all of the platforms so yeah. uh also like even if you think about such uh, easy concepts as translations, yeah, that's also shared in all of the products, but we don't usually think about this part as code sharing, but maybe we should. Yeah. Um, so your example is somewhere near the left-hand side. My yeah. example with React XP and probably with React Native Web as well, it's more about sharing the whole application yeah. Uh, so it's more near the center of the yeah. right hand side. But uh, back then, when I started, and the the timeline that you are describing, you couldn't uh, really squeeze in all the things that you wanted from. You couldn't find a solution all the way to the right, all the way to the culture, yeah. everything. Yeah. So. Uh, What's the multi-platform state of solutions today? I, I are we all the way to the right already? 
I love that you described that spectrum because I think we're gonna we're gonna be using that a lot to to go through yeah. The, yeah. The, the options, right? So so let's go through the choices today, and I, I think this is really really valuable to to, to look at. I think like, let's go to the very left of the spectrum is going to be you share absolutely nothing, just have native apps, don't even use React Native. Cool. Now then we go a little bit more to the left. Well, we go a little bit more to the right. You you have maybe a React app, you have a React Native app, you can do what we did on Mate, right? You, you try to extract out bits of business logic, extract out bits of things like translations, things that are really just fundamentally shareable and and the underrated, I like to call them the underrated shareable parts of a, of a React and React yeah. Native app. And um, BM libra- libraries. Yeah, precisely. Like there's there's so much that you can share and it's, it's really a, a shame not to. Um, and, and oftentimes, you know, just to take a little bit of a caveat with this, oftentimes when, you know, I, I meet someone and I'm, I'm speaking to them and they already have a React web app and they're thinking of building a React native app, they haven't gone down the universal route. But to me, they can still benefit from this concept of multi-platform React. You can still go in and abstract some of your business logic and re-architecture slightly your, your web app in a way that it just accelerates your your build of your, your native app with React Native. So um, I think there's, then there's that level. Um, and then we get into the to the like hybrid universal apps where I think you start to share parts of your UI. You maybe share your you know UI components, your atoms, your your molecules, your organisms from your design system, um, and you share parts of the screen, part of the more complex components, but you maybe handle layouting differently. And then, th- like you say, there's different dimensions here. Like, what bundlers do you use for this, right? Do you do you use like Webpack across web and mobile, and maybe use Repack under the hood for the mobile side? Do you use Metro for for native, and then do you use Webpack for web? Like, you can start to add a lot do of these you use elements. Metro for web as well, and you. And just... I think that's where it gets to the very very far yeah. end of it, which is like, okay, right. let's, just use, <laughs> let's just use Met far right. Let's just use uh, let's just use Metro for absolutely everything, and and we'll go into yeah. that. That's kind of what we opted for with the streaming platform, which we'll talk about in a bit later. Um, but I think there's oh, a there's you're a very, using Metro in production for web. We're using Metro in production, well, to be released into production very soon, um, into web. Okay. Um, but uh, yeah, we 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 are, which is uh, uh we'll talk about part of the the challenges with Let that. Let me as well. note down a question about this. Oh goodness later. me, this is gonna be uh, this is gonna be scary. Yeah. Um, but. But I think a really optimized approach that I like, and it's one that we're doing for uh, another uh, client, which is 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 for like a, a sports client, uh, is trying to really leverage React Native for web, but maybe not trying to push to the bundler level. Um, and what the, what that means is, you know, you use a Next.js site and you use that because it's de facto the way that you should be building production React apps, um, and you use something like Expo for the native side, which will accelerate and give you some of the same DevX experience that you get on the website. And sure, you're not sharing 100%. There's going to be some stuff that you won't be able to share. Um, and and that's fine. You know, you, you accept that and you you go for a little bit more of a platform optimized approach, but I think one that will uh, benefit the client and get them the best quality across all of these. Um, just to go on the Metro one, and then there's the concept of universal apps across the full scale, right? The, the far right yeah. example, as Lukash liked to say. Um, so I, I think um, the uh, that one is is very interesting because you get this this the the, the release of Expo Router, which is a fully metro, full on on Metro basically. Um, yeah. And, and this concept of like let's even share the navigation, let's share the bundler, let's let's just go with one centralized approach. And I think long term this is actually a really exciting vision for me because you reduce so much complexity um, and you 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 take out the complexity of managing these different runtimes of managing different bundlers, different navigation systems, trying to build, use Next.js's tools, as well as maybe some of the Expo tools or just, you know, a bare React Native Apps tools. And I think that to me is is um, is quite an exciting prospect because, again, it opens the doors and makes things much more accessible. A lot more businesses can build out universal apps. Now, are we well, there yet? What do you think? Oh, okay. <laughs> so that's time, time for me to chime in. I was going to challenge that, actually, because... You say this is a very exciting future, and let's say I agree with the exciting future part, but is it the right approach long-term? Because you have so much knowledge and so much know-how and so much good practices and so much just people and industries uh, building upon Next.js, building upon HTML, all the different web technologies. Yeah. And then it, it, it's a trade-off, right? If you're building a product that's it's um, it has 
some edge conditions that you don't care about all of the know-how. You, you, you just care about um, time to market. You, you yep. care about the visibility. Um, yeah, let's use the, the newest and greatest and far-right approach to, yep. to have the universal app from Expo. Yeah, from for web as well. But if you care about um, engineering talent, uh, about people who are able to squeeze in the last half percent of performance from yep. your application, they won't be able to debug the the metro for web for some specific use cases right now. Yeah, maybe in a few years time when more people try to 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 use it, that's possible. Yep. But right now with you know, there are existing, of course, you know, there are existing uh, architecture patterns of how to make things work yeah. at scale. And um, yeah, I'm not sure if it, it, it is a use case for some for some uh, use cases, but not for that everyone should start using um, far right, let's Absolutely. culture everything. Oh, absolutely. And I, I think it's, it's a, you have to with, as with all things with tech, you need to take a very nuanced approach with a lot of these things, because I think uh, you have to really see what's important to that specific project. Um, and I, and I, I'm very like, I'm looking forward to going through the, the, the choices that we made and why we ultimately ended up with going for the far right metro for web. Um, we, we got to stop saying far right, uh, the, yeah, the metro let's, for let's web uh, universal app, um, but, you know, just to, just to wrap that that part up, I think, can you co-chair everything? I, I, I don't think you can even, even when you go yeah. for that approach, right? Because there's going to be certain external libraries that just will will not work properly for your use case on web, and maybe they work well on mobile. And you have to even start thinking about certain libraries you may need to, to choose different implementations on the web and abstract them away in different APIs. Certain behaviors are going to be different on web compared to mobile. And so, like, you will still need to it will not just work magically out of the box, right? You, you as the engineer will need to make those trade-offs. Yeah. Um, and, and so is it ever going to be fully, fully universal? No, but I think we're pretty, pretty damn close. Yeah. To, to, to draw the conclusion from what you said, uh, in our existing ecosystem of Android, mobile, web, TV, VR, maybe it is not possible. It would have been possible for something like Java virtual machine, right? Yeah, like you'd have to have the same uh, environment on or, all of those. Did, dare I say platforms. it? I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say it, and you're gonna hate me for this. Um, as as my friend Taz uh, Singh used to used to say, this is the the big F word that I'm not allowed to say. Or in the case of Flutter, something like that is yeah. possible. But yeah, you know, um, it, yeah, like you say, it's 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 possible when you nail the environments down but you also when you when you build a system like that you need to make sure everyone either has the 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 J, jvm basically installed on their machine which we don't want to go back to those days because those days sucked um or you render everything in a canvas on web and then lose out on all of the web native features right it's, it, there's a trade-off with that as well and so i think we need to we need to really do respect these these platform specific intricacies whether it be native apps or with the web the web is a phenomenal piece of tech we're not going to replace it with some canvas that just renders everything yeah. and, and yeah, I, I don't it's want not realistic right yeah yeah um so we are in the part when we are geeking out about the different possibilities on the spectrum we already said that the spectrum is not one dimension it's probably two or more dimensions yeah. uh i think the one dimension that we care about the most in react native react world is the like uh, business logic visual layer a kind yeah. of a spectrum. All all the rest of them are in the different, uh, on the different places in on x uh, on y axis. We are moving uh, across the x axis. Yeah. Um, do you want to stay here for a little bit uh, more and maybe discuss the possibilities for what exactly can we share? Um, yeah. Yeah. Let, let, let's do that. I think that's important. So so I actually. Um, did a talk on this last year, which was universal apps. What should you share? What what's the state of what you can share? Um, and so, you know, roughly the categories that uh, that I kind of broke it out to was like UI, right? Just the the rendering and the components that you have, navigation, business logic, um, 
And then things like your adapter layers to network calls or external services or so on and so forth. Um, and, you know, React being platform agnostic, you know, you can use React to build UIs for anything, right? You can build a CLI with React, right? And that's that's the beauty of React. You know, uh, React DOM is just an implementation. Uh, one of the things with React, which I think um, is, is quite nice about it, is that, you know, you've got the same hooks across the board with React, with React Native or React on DOM. And, you know, you've got the same systems in place and the same JavaScript logic that you write there. So um, all of that you can share just kind of naturally. Um, things like navigation becomes more difficult depending on what situation in, you're in, right? Because, you know, if you're going down the, the universal Expo Router app approach with Metro, then, yeah, you can share navigation across the board, right? The tools are there for you to not even have to worry about the different environments when you're when you're dealing with navigation. Um, now there's some interesting caveats there around how that navigation renders and behaves across web and mobile. Like if you use a drawer on mobile, what does that look like on web? Or if you use a stack or a tab, how does that look like? And what do you need to think about with that? And I think, um, there's some interesting things when you, when you go into the expo docs and look at the platform specific layouting section under expo router, you'll see that like in very if you want a mature application that's not an MVP, you do need to start thinking about layouting differently because inherently layouts on web and mobile are different, right? And you don't yeah. want to maybe share those layouts. If you And the example that, that I usually bring with this is go onto the Twitter web app and put the Twitter mobile app right next to it, right? Things are just in different places. On the web app, you've got your main feed, you've got your navigation on the left-hand side, and then on the right-hand side, you've got your search and discover section. This is totally different on the native app, right? People expect different layouting on native apps. And so, you know, you go it's into It's basically the... twisted the 90 degrees, right? Because you yeah. have search on the top, then you have your feed, and then you have your navigation. Well, you've got your navigation, and the search on on the native, at least iOS app, is actually in a different tab. And all of those discovers are in a different tab. So, you okay. know, it, it might even be that certain screens just don't have the same things on them. Um, yeah. And, and so you can, you can share the components, the, the atoms, you know, a lot of the stuff you can share. But when you go to the top level layouting, sometimes it just doesn't make sense to share it if you want a refined experience. Now, again, it, yeah. it all kind of depends, right? At the end of the day, um, if you're just trying to launch an MVP, if you just want to get something out and you're a mobile first business, you know, you're maybe a challenger bank that, you know, everyone's going to be using your mobile app for 90% of the time. And sometimes they're going to need a web implementation if they're on the go or they don't have their phone on them, then you can you can kind of compromise on some of these things, right? Because you, you're still trying to balance within that scope, cost, and time yeah. time triangle. But I think I think I think there are there's these conscious decisions that need to be made architecturally around this. Sure. Thanks for such a brief and deep uh, overview. Yeah. Of I hope this it wasn't confusing. That we, if, if the no no no, and I I want to like um, summarize this. Yeah. At Callstack, we have this term, which is React Universe. And React Universe basically means that if you are already plugged in, you are one leg in into React Universe. You use, like, like you said, React on web, or you have React Native app, or even you are in JavaScript world at all. Yeah. It's beneficial for you time-wise, work-wise, uh, scope-wise, yeah. to get into the React universe more, to plug in your mobile application, to plug in, to, to share your business logic in Redux or whatever yeah. other uh, state management you have. Um, and the way and the amount of code sharing is only dependent of, on, on your use case and what makes sense for your product. So we call it React Universe. React universe. And, and we you call don't it even have to use... And we call it Universal, universal React. Apps. So we're very close by. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so let's let's wrap it up. And from and Just, just this, one, like, one, one yeah. final thing on this, which I think is... is really, and I think you hit this point and, and it reminded me. You know, I think one of the, the, the beautiful things about this is, you know, you as a developer want to focus on developing, right? Um, and a lot of these decisions are go up to go up to business stakeholders, right? You've got like think of the C level executives in a business, right? And I think this idea of like universal React using React across your entire sort of platform, uh, the the platforms that that you're targeting, 
is is a is a message that resonates with everyone in 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 leadership. You can make it resonate with a CTO because you're reducing technical complexity, and you know they don't have yeah. three or four different teams. You can resonate with a CFO because you just say to them, "You're cutting costs in the sh- you know in the long term." It resonates with a CPO because the CPO doesn't have to manage like four different teams on different tech stacks and like making sure that everyone is going to release a feature at the same. Like everyone benefits from it. It's just that it resonates with a, HR because you streamline your recruiting process. Yeah, and and there's far more JavaScript developers out there than you yeah. know getting native developers and multiplying these across different teams. You know, it's it's a it's such a an amazing um, offering, and I think. The, the 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 future with this is going to be so exciting. I think it's it's only starting to be talked about more and more, um, and I think it's 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 very exciting. Okay, thanks. So now we are wrapping up the geeking out about the possibilities in code sharing, and we're jumping in the specific use case that you recently had, and uh, something that I'm also familiar with. So streaming, sorry, multi-platform <laughs> streaming service. Uh, tell us some more about the use case of, of your client. So, so I, I, without going into names because I'm not technically allowed to. Um, so, uh, you know, we recently um, uh, started having conversations with a client who was looking to build a, a streaming platform. Now, one of the things that we realized was they were targeting a market which was very heavy on mobile usage, um, but they also wanted to have a web platform as well. And uh, one of the restraints that they had was they were really gunning to launch before a uh, a specific event that was happening in their country, and so um, they they were like, you know, we need to to build this out quickly. We know we want to do mobile, but we really need web. And it was kind of like, how can we have everything um, while still being able to do this in time? And so uh, I had I had really been immersed in the space of the universal app. And so we went and spoke to them about this concept of universal apps. You know, we said, you you want to build a streaming platform and you want to build it in three different devices effectively. First of all, React Native is a no-brainer. You should really go for React Native, but why not take that to the web as well? You know, you are mobile first and you are targeting mobile users primarily and you have a tight deadline. I think this is the only way that you can deliver. And so we, we really started exploring this concept of creating this universal streaming platform. And eventually down the line as well, you know, once once these guys, these folks are up and running, um, we we know that they are targeting a TV app as well. And so naturally you can start to, again, share across that universe of React devices that can be targeted and use it for TV as well. So, you know, it was just a no brainer. And, you know, with, with the limited capacity of developers that they had as well, we didn't really want to throw them down the deep end of go find a web developer, go find a TV developer, go find native developers. And, you know, it was... It was the right choice, I think, strategically for them long term. So that, that's kind of a, an overview of how we came into this. I'm happy to jump into more if, if if you have any specific things that you want me to cover as well. Oh, no. So I already... Uh, so the main uh, assumptions and limitations are obvious. Uh, time to market okay. is crucial. Uh, yep. Mobile first, web second, and then maybe TV at some point in the future. So with those in mind... What is your timeline to? Um, what is, uh, I I didn't want yeah. to say timeline. What is your roadmap, uh, the roadmap for yeah. the strategic decisions uh, that you have to do along the way to yep. to get this set up and running? So so lo, lo, that's a great question. Uh, let me start from what was the timeline to get this out? Right. So the timeline that we had to deliver this um, is three months for all three platforms building features like full streaming, and you laugh at that. Um, it's, it's, it was difficult, but, but, you know, we, um, we, we, we got there, which is fascinating. Um, and I think this well, was, this I know is that you have teams in all the time zones. <laughs> yeah. Well, we have teams in New York city, London and France. And I think we leveraged all three of those time zones. So, you know, minus five plus zero and plus one, um, if you're looking on the time zone scale, but you know, it was uh, working around the clock, so to speak. Um, and you know, we, 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 we got there. Um, and working backwards from that, it was very like, very much like, what do we need to do? Um, and what are the choices that we need to make here? Uh, and then in terms of the features, just to just cover that as well, you know, it's not just streaming, it's things like streaming, um, social interactions on that streaming platform, because it was meant to be very collaborative, um, sort of server-driven UI for the layouting of all of this. So like, if you want to change how the content is being displayed, 
um, both that's the, that's the new hot thing. Oh yeah, yeah, very much so. Um, it wasn't RSCs, but it was server-driven sort of UI layouting with sort of JSON blobs being sent. Um, and um, what else? Things like polling on the site and a lot of these functionalities that go into almost like a full-scale media platform for like a news platform or something, they, they really wanted a quick time to market. And so, you know, a, a lot of strategic tech decisions were had to, uh, we, we had to make early on. You know, one of the things that we thought was we suddenly had a tight deadline and we had about 12 different, 13 different developers um, starting off in, in one go. And so, you know, one of the conversations was, well, how do we actually like structure and architect this effectively so that it scales? And people are working on this at the same exact time as each other. How do we make sure that people aren't always constantly stepping on each other's toes and they're kind of empowered to build and uh, deliver independently as much as possible? And then we can kind of bring these features together so that that people are not blocking each other at the um, at every single crossroads effectively. So one of the questions that we had to ask, and it's great to go over this with you, I think, is to go with a monorepo or not to go with a monorepo was was a was a very quick question for us to ask. And then how do we structure and lay out our organization to allow and enable these teams to independently deliver their specific features? I think that was a really interesting question. And we, we really saw the trade-offs. And I, I think it'd be good to go through the trade-offs of that. Yeah, I was going to actually ask you about this because the um, in the conversations, you don't usually hear about the drawbacks of the monorepo. You hear yeah. about the benefits. So what are the trade-offs? There's a, there's a lot of trade-offs with monorepo, which is that, you know, you are trying to solve an organizational issue with tech solutions. And oftentimes what that means is you need to invest a lot in making sure that the tech is there um, and it's refined. And what do I mean by that? It, it, you need to make sure that you are optimizing, even with the right tooling in place, you're optimizing for your CI. You're optimizing things like cache because you're basically storing things that would traditionally go into a poly repo structure. You'd have multiple repos and things would be more isolated and less data would be living in a repo you're basically combining all of them together and trying to use put the pressure of of the what would traditionally be an orchestration and building into your repo tooling so things that that we saw was you know ci times needed to be kept in in check right there might be a misconfiguration of a package and it would just not be caching properly and then you, you your ci times just like go up unnecessarily um things like making sure you have consistent TypeScript configurations across the board for your different packages and your apps and making sure that the right environment is is attached because our monorepo wasn't just, you know, front-end monorepo. It was also the back-end logic was all stored there as well. Yeah. And then we were sharing types across the board and making sure that you've got the right type environments. You know, are you are part of the app is going to be running in Node, but some of it might be running in the DOM. You know, all of these things you need to you need to really configure well. Linting rules getting the right linting rule set up for these packages. So there's a lot of these considerations that you may not need to have when you're having individual sort of repos. Um, but when you go with a modern repo, there's these organizational challenges that come into place. Yeah. Or uh, in multi-repo approach, you might get into those issues, but the issues are not impacting all of the developers at the same time. Yeah. They might be impacting yeah. just very true three-person team somewhere, yeah. but the, the, the rest of us can... Yeah. Um, can just uh, jog along with our projects, basically. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So we, what we ended up doing was, you know, over time we, we we faced a lot of those things, and we we also had to optimize our pipelines to to make sure that we're only really building what we need to build, and we're only like packaging the sort the bits of the 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 packages that we have inside of our app independently. Um, th other things that was interesting was you know trying to um one of the things that we did was create kind of like sandbox environments for these different packages to be able to develop independently. So, you know, you don't need to plug everything into the, the main app that's running in production. You can maybe test your features or at least your UI libraries and using tools like Storybook and stuff like that to basically allow people to develop bits of the functionality without needing to be reliant on other teams' as work streams and making sure that everything is is uh, is as smooth as possible. So it's, it's choices like that that you have to kind of consider, which was uh, an interesting um experience to have and it, it, i think it, it helped us in the end um but obviously it comes at a cost the the, the piece about uh, working uh, allowing to work in isolation this is a very powerful concept i think there was a talk in react native eu i don't know three years ago when uh, microsoft um talked about 
someone from Microsoft, not the Microsoft, the, the guy, but someone from Microsoft. <laughs> uh, sorry, I forgot who it was about the React Native, Native Tester app that they have in their uh, um, toolkit for React Native, yeah. uh, which basically allows to to test yeah. in isolation all of the pieces that you are developing. Yeah, this is incredibly important, especially once your team starts to scale beyond you know a few developers. I think it's it's important to not let them uh, cause blockages in, in a pipeline that you've got. So uh, the first decision you make, uh, you go with Monorepo um, yeah. and you um, monitor the usage of the CI right. uh, and basically optimizing it so that it not slows yeah. down the, the yeah. teams and it works properly. What else? What other uh, choices you have to make at the beginning so that you organize the work yeah. for 12 people? So so at that point as well, what one of the choices that we had to make was what sort of UI styling paradigm are we going to go with? And what do we want to use for for our UI components? Um, so th there's conversations there around architecture, like how do you structure your UI design system, so to speak. That that's something that that is is kind of irrelevant. Um, but you know what libraries and what solutions exist there. So so we we kind of analyzed a few options at that point. You know uh, we we looked at Native Wind, um, we looked at a, a bunch of different sort of libraries like Dripsy, um, and uh, of course, cell components, even though there's a lot of performance concerns with a lot of these libraries. Um, and uh, we ended up going with Tamagui, um, which which was also oh, okay. an interesting experience. Um, uh, Tamagui is a, is a great library. Um, I really do, really do love what Tamagui is trying to achieve. For me, one of the things that we we really had to consider about was, you know, JS, CSS and JS is, is, you know, great in many ways, but it's also really problematic in many other ways you know like going back to the whole like platform optimization conversation you know css is very good at doing what css needs to do and you know yeah. one of the thick selling points for me with um tamagui is this concept of trying to respect css styles and compile out the css styles on web um and not having to like recalculate media queries in the js layer like small stuff like that is very important i think tamagui gets that right um so that was one of the things that we had to consider and then Again, that conversation of do you share the layouts or do you share like individual atoms and molecules and maybe organisms, but you you don't try to share the layouting. And, and given the tight time to market that we had, we ultimately decided to actually share the layouting with mine, you know, with, with trying to respect things with like responsiveness, but, you know, not really trying to optimize heavily on the layouting and the navigation of the app, trying to keep it as consistent as we can across the platforms just for the faster time to market and the tight deadline that we had. Um, now, one of the challenges with using a cutting-edge UI library like Tamagui is that docs are not going to be as refined as a solution that you've that's been around for years and years. I think that was one of the bottlenecks that we faced was was documentation. Um, a lot of times, finding out the right patterns and what to do was going through the source code of Tamagui and trying to understand what certain props do, um, which which can end up being a bit of a bottleneck for your team. But yeah, yeah, really I was such going, a cool, I, such a cool I was budget. <laughs> I was going to comment on the choice of Tamagui because it's such a new initiative. It's been around for maybe a year, year and a half, maybe. Yes. Uh, I want to say so. It's really, really fresh. Yeah. Uh, in terms of production ready, but um, I've heard I've heard many, many good things. I I haven't tried it myself yet, but uh, I will right after a recording of this episode. I'm, I'm going to. <laughs> do you promise? Uh, have, do, do, do you promise? <laughs> yes. Over? Yeah. Yes. Okay, cool. Yeah. <laughs> Nate will be very happy. Um, no, but, but you know, it's it, it's a it is a it is a fresh piece of tech. I think it was one that, given the the backers of it, we 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 thought will eventually mature, and I think I think it will eventually mature into a place where it will be you know one of the de facto choices for building universal style. I think we wanted to just make sure we set up the jump on the right train, and you know, one of the benefits of Tamagui was that it is a very quick way to style UIs on web and mobile. I think once you understand how the library works, once you understand the concepts and you learn them, your productivity is massive. Uh, even things like breakpoints are done so nicely on Tamagui compared to you know many other libraries um, that are out there. Um, I think the, the the closest one that I can see is these days. And this this wasn't the case when we started um, looking at these choices. Was uh, you know uh, UniStyles has now become another library but again, very 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 new. Um, in the space, and so is um, so is Native Wind with some of the new media breakpoint stuff as well. So I think stuff like that makes Tamagui just kind of like a superpower. 
Um, but again, it's, it comes at the cost of trying to learn this technology that's very, very fresh and very, very cutting edge. Uh, I'm looking at my list of questions for you, and I noticed that we didn't discuss something in the like broad spectrum discussion. So sure. let's try to, to, to touch on this uh, piece of this as well. But sure. I was going to ask about the dependencies yeah. and the dependencies that might be different for the underlying platform. Yeah. So if you imagine, like from React Native World, we have a fast image and the newest uh, Expo image, and yeah. they just import something natively from yeah. from Android and iOS. On Android, I think it's a Glide library, a very fast library for imaging. Yeah, that's the same with the same with image. The same is uh, is the case with like video player, for yeah. example. So video player dependency in your streaming app must be your one of the highest uh, priorities. Absolutely. To, to focus on. So that, that was one of the things that we looked on very early on was like, we want a video player that, so when you're building a streaming app, it's not just, you know, plop in a video player and, you know, it'll work. It's, it's what video player will support DRM that you're, the DRM that you're trying to target, what video players um, will have the functionality, the accessibility functionality that you want to have. Um, and then the streaming protocol that you want to have, is it going to support HLS? Is it going to support Dash? You know, what, what are the streaming protocols that you can support with it? And, you know, uh, if it, it's very easy to not look into this deeply, um, you know, one of the things that you, you may see is you go on the Expo site and you see Expo AV, it supports iOS, Android, web, and great. And, you know, you see somewhere in the docs, oh, it supports HLS streams. And you're like, great. This is, this is going to be a, a walk in the park, right? Um, and then, <laughs> no. and then you, uh, and then, and then you actually go into the depths of it and you go into the trenches and you realize, well, you know, it says HLS streaming is there, but yeah, it's there for iOS and Android, not for web. And you, you then, these subtle intricacies that you realize there's very particular features that you need that are core to your business case, and they will not be there in certain libraries, even if they're quote unquote universal libraries, right? And so um, this is this is one of the things that you need to iron out very quickly at the beginning of it, is like, check out your dependencies, see which ones are shareable. And you may, at the end of the day, have to decide, as we did with XYV, you know, we may use XYV for certain platforms, but we will not be using it for web because it just will not have the functionality that we need for web, right? It's a very complex streaming um, application. And that's fine. You you create an abstraction layer over it and you, you, you get the functionality that you want on each platform. And that's where you have to hone in and optimize the platform specific implementations. Um, and, and it doesn't, it, I think that's the, that, that's one of the important pieces that you're going to have to, to, to go into. So I'm, I'm glad you brought it up. Yeah. And, it it brings us back to the same concept of as uh, React XP, right? You have yep. different implementations for different platforms, and you just create this bridging layer. Yep. Um, I think in, in in my project we have a similar case with flat list and flash list. We cannot use yep. flash list on some of the platforms, so yep. we just have a abstraction that under the hood either uses flat list uh, from React Native or flash list from Shopify, yep. and we just uh, bridge the tool and and that's all yeah so no, it's yeah. very much the, the the case you know even let's go into the tv world for a second as well similar use case you know we don't want to use flatless for tv because it's not as optimized with this very very minimal resources that you have available on tv like you think android phones are bad some of them are bad tv is a whole other monster um and yeah. so, you know it's uh we we had to create our own memoization and our own virtualization of a list um and so can you share some of that logic across web and mobile? Probably, uh, and across web and TV, probably. Um, and but you you want to go in and make sure that the lists are hyper optimized for TV. Otherwise, you're going to really struggle yeah. with performance issues. Yeah, yeah. And probably if you if you spend that much time in optimizing for TV, you don't want to necessarily bring the same optimization to mobile because we don't need them there. And yep. if you don't need them there, you try to avoid the cost of maintaining those optimizations yep. for mobiles if you don't need it. Yeah, exactly. And it's just very different paradigms as well with TV, right? You know, it's, even the inputs are different. So it doesn't make sense to oftentimes share these share these optimizations, yeah. right? So yeah, yeah. You, you, you hit the, uh, the nail in the head, as they say. Uh, going back to your use case, um, we talked about the repo structure. We talked about the 
depth of sharing the UI components, you decided yeah. you will share everything, almost, even almost. the layouts. Uh, brave choice. Uh, we discussed the dependencies I've got, uh, I've with got the battle scars to show you if you want. <laughs> we discussed the dependencies with the with the focus on video player, but there are many different ones that you have yeah. to consider the same way. Um, so, what about the building strategies? Yeah. We, we touched briefly on CI as well, so yeah. let's go back to it. Building strategies of multi-platform projects. Uh, I have my scars from, from from this part as well. Uh, I'd love to hear your. I actually would love to hear your your thoughts first because you know I, I'd love to see how you guys have approached this because I think it, it's a place where it's still relatively un, uncharted territories in terms of standardization across you know the industry. Well, on high level, like you said, you have to care about the um, the dependencies. You have yeah. to care about the sharing only what's necessary when you build the tv you have yeah. to uh think about what components are actually used on tv and what yeah. not and uh building we have three different tv platforms tvos yeah. uh android tv and fire tv yeah uh, two different mobiles android and ios yeah and uh and web to add to that so you have to really pick and choose yeah. what level of building and what level of testing you do on each um, software development step. Do you yep. do all of do you do all of your tests and all of your building on each PR? Probably not because it's going Probably to block not, your yeah. PR for hours and hours. Yes, right. How much do you do? So we actually we actually have a system to pick the right building scenario and pick the right testing scenario yeah. for the level of development life cycle. So yeah. definitely like for the release level, we Ops do course. all of it. Yeah, And then for the PR level, we might do just uh, one platform or just a separate suite of tests and not, and not all of it. So yeah. there is a level of smoke testing. There is a level of precision yeah. testing, let's say. So you have to consider that. Yeah. Um, no, it, 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 and it, it was it was very similar considerations on our end as well. Um, you know, releasing is a different story. Like you just want to make sure you get it right. So, so you can you can go all in on that, but you you also don't want to slow down your team, right? With like unit tests running and then end to end tests running and then weird integration tests running as well on every single PR and then forcing a bunch of processes down that will like slow down your team and take away from the benefits of having a universal app, right? That is being quick and delivering um, with a low time to market. Um, and so we, we had to make that decision, like how do you choose tests to run um, on those intervals while still not going overboard? And I think it's important as well when, when you, what, this this again goes into that enablement of your team through the monorepo. You know, if you have the right monorepo tool set in place, you know, you're using something like TurboRepo or NX, which I think you really should use um, on, a, on a project that's large scale. You know, um, having those tools in place will enable levels of caching for you. You know that you can have a remote cache that's set up that checks, and if there's diffs between your code, it won't run the tests again. It will just assume that they pass because you haven't touched that bit of the unit test or you haven't touched that specific package. So it'll cache some of those tasks for you and save it when you've got several different packages and several different apps that may need building, um, and you've only touched one. Um, so the tools will help this, um, but at the same time, you need to kind of think outside of the box, like how do I want to test this specifically. Um, so going into sort of like the development life cycle, um, on PRs, you know, we, 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 we decided, you know, we're going to keep basic unit tests running. We're going to do like a, 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 almost like a bundle rather than a build, um, of the application to just make sure that there's nothing breaking the JavaScript bundle. Um, um, but you know, we, we're assuming that the build, we can, we can test that on a less frequent basis because not much is going to change in the native dependencies. Um, and then running through some levels of integration tests um, to make sure that you know basic flows aren't breaking. That you can run relatively quickly on 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 a PR. You know it might take a few minutes, and that's that's fine. That's acceptable on a PR yeah. level. Um, one of the things that we we do almost on all all of our projects is we um, have 
an internal tool that actually I've, I've released a version of, but is long overdue for an update because it's that version is a very, very, very simple version of it that you can do on just a very normal, basic Expo app. Um, is this concept of uh, like a preview branch? So you know when you when you go onto Vercel and you know you you uh, create you know uh, uh, you push a, a a change and you create a PR on that PR, Vercel will just come in and comment and say you know check this preview link and check it out. Uh, one of the things that we we use is we we just create an EAS update effectively. As long as you've got a development build on your device, um, you it it comes in and puts a like a little screenshot uh, or a QR code. For iOS and Android, and you can, as the reviewer, just go in, open up your development build, take a take a quick glance at the changes there, and also functionally review that the changes that the person has made are actually implementing what the user wants. Um, so one of the that's one of the things that we use um, on the PR level, uh, and then the other aspect is well, we want to run end to end tests. So how are we going to do end to end tests effectively? And what we what we what we do is we we basically use our tool Flashlight. So so. You know, Theodo has also BAM as our as our sister company, um, uh, which is sort of the mobile specialist team. Um, and Flashlight is a great tool because, well, we can test the performance and see have any of our changes affected the major flows in terms of performance. And conveniently, out of that as well, you can run Maestro tests because that's how it, you know, knows how to orchestrate and behave and 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 use the phone, the um, to test the performance of it. So we we then set up a pipeline to have nightly Flashlight tests as well. Um, so you can go in and every single night you run a few of your flows on flashlight and you'll get a performance score. And over time, you know, you see like, hmm, on this day, the score dropped from like 70 to 50. What happened here? You know, what, yeah. what, 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 what are the seven PRs that went that, in that went during through that and, day? And then yeah. you can decide the frequency depending on the frequency of how quickly your team is developing, right? We thought doing it every single night made sense and it did help us discover certain regressions, which was great. And that was doing its job. Well, uh, nightly is a, very nice concept if you know where the night is, when the night is. Yes. Uh, in our project, we also run the more tests and like performance tests in the nightlies, but we have uh, teams in like time zones that differ by around eight hours. So we have a team no, in Poland. There is a team in uh, West Coast US, uh, US, and there is a team in somewhere in Asia. So yeah. uh, where's When's the night to to run the night lease? Yeah, and that, that's the challenge as well. So you know, we had our US team as well, and and our London team in France. Much less of a broad time zone because we try to kind of be more like centralized, so so we can we we can coordinate some of these things. But you know, um, we we had to make that decision. Like, when do we run it as well? Um, but you know, I think I think we you can generally find that time. Sometimes not, which is a shame. But you know, then. Then it does make the I think it makes the tracing back more difficult than anything. Lukash is like, okay, two a.m. this time was this person working or not? Um, and then you go from there. <laughs> oh, okay, so they maybe these PRs, I guess. So yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I think we discussed a lot of things from like day to day development perspective. Yeah, and um, I think one thing is left, which we discussed in the previous section of this episode which is the bundler choice oh yes. so walk us through the yep. usage of metro for web and how this is all uh, playing yep. out for you so you know the, the choices that we looked at briefly was webpack um using next.js for for um for the website or using metro across the board um and then maybe something like Repack, although again, Repack is kind of like using React Native on the mobile side with um, with Webpack and then using Webpack, which we didn't, I don't think we needed the features that Repack gave us. Like we weren't looking at something like Module Federation or Code Splitting at that point. So um, why we went for Metro? Um, I think it was this concept of trying to reduce the time to time to market. Um, because you know, when you add a add another bundler, or you're managing two separate bundlers with two separate sort of uh, bundling runtimes, uh, one of the challenges becomes how do you, you know, how does that slow down your team in terms of the delivery speed? Um, and so for us, where we were really the, the top top priority was delivering on time because there was a very specific deadline, and the client, you know, really had an MVP mindset of just get this out ASAP. Well, what, one of the things that we considered was, well, our monorepo allows us to break away from our bundler choice as well in the long term. Like we have isolated everything into packages. The app is just basically a navigation um, 
setup that will import from the packages. So we could migrate it away to Next.js eventually, but for now, we just want to deliver quickly. Let's reduce the overhead for our developers and just keep it as one one sort of bundler and one sort of app that you need to test and manage at any given point. Now, that does come with its own practical challenges and its drawbacks, right? Because, you know, you will not get the same, like you mentioned, the whole Next.js community is, is you know, driving the web forward, so to speak. Some people may yeah. disagree with that. That's a controversial statement these days. But, you know, it's 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 one of those things where it's like, that's the de facto standard of how you use the web within the React world. And so, you know, you don't have to worry about things like SEO too much. You can get away with, you know, having better performance generally on the web. And I think the big challenge with, with Metro specifically was, you know, um, the root of it was performance effectively on the web, right? One of the challenges that you have is no tree shaking, which is just like, you know, uh, yeah. So what's the it, bundle size? Oh, to, to don't get there. Um, <laughs> that's a, that's a, that was that the question that you noted down? Um, uh, no, 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 no. Uh, I, I noted down to, to actually talk to, to, to get to talking about yeah. Metro in, uh, in like, in, in, uh, web. Yeah. in web. Uh, so that was one of the challenges that we had. You know, it's at one point was a bundle size optimization mission, right? Because it was like, um, again, web was not our top priority. And this is ultimately at the core of this issue. You know, web was a secondary platform. The target was really mainly a native app with a web presence as well. Um, we we started off with the bundle size, you know, because there's no tree shaking, it can just get insane, right? You can get like... 10 megabyte bundles uncompressed, 11 megabyte bundles uncompressed, which compressed ends up being like three megs. And you're like, wow, that is uh, scary. Um, but, you know, you then, you, once you dig into it, you know, there are manual, in, you know, transform import, imports or different things that you can do, certain libraries, you can just not bundle them with web. And it was, this was something that I spent a lot of time actually um, chatting with uh, Evan from the, uh, from the Expo team about. What is this vision of like making the performance of, of, you know, expert router apps uh, effective. And uh, you'll see in SDK 50, you know, a lot of libraries like gesture handler are, are removed from web by default because you don't need that on web, right? It's it's a mobile dependency that was getting bundled in because somewhere in expert router source code, it was just referred to as that. So, you know, there was stuff like that. It was patching certain packages on on web to remove that stuff because it was like, we don't need that um, in our specific yeah. implementation. So we actually so have brought, to do um, a lot of legwork to, to get... Um, to get some of the um, drawbacks of not having tree shaking yeah. uh, mitigated, so I I, th I think you need to you need to actively keep an eye on it, and that's what I say to a lot of people these days. It's like you're starting a universal app if you're using, you know, Expert Router and or you want to use Metro for web. Um, keep an eye on your bundle size. Have a create a custom script on your CI that just generates the source maps and checks what the bundle size is, and if it's increased by a certain percentage, alert yourself. It's like don't let this become an issue and then have to deal with it. You know, I think we 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 had something ridiculous, like 11 megabytes, and some of it was just like silly. Like, you know, it was like, why I've imported a single icon from Tamagui's icon collection and suddenly there's three megas of icons just bundled in here. And it's like, all okay. of them. All of just them. Just all like, of right? them. Just every single <laughs> icon and like one was being used. You know, like basic things that you don't have to think about when you have tree shaking. Yeah. Um. So we ultimately brought it down to four. Um, uncompressed, which compressed went below one megabyte, which isn't, you know, it's not state of the art by any metric of the word. Um, but, you know, yeah. it, it was acceptable for what we were trying to achieve, which was a web platform that was performing enough to load um, relatively quickly, uh, even on slow networks like 3G networks, which was one of the things that we were looking at. So we, we got there ultimately in the end. Now, things like SEO, you will struggle with um, unless you go with static exports. And you know something like static exports again is is still being worked on and ironed out by the expert router team. So I think there's still some stuff left, but I would go for Metro if you are in a very similar position to what we were in, which is mobile first, mobile first, mobile first, then web. And you know yeah. you you want to just accelerate your team. You have a quick deadline and you want to get there. And I think I would do that with a way with a with a mindset that I think expert router will evolve and and develop much better performance. And I think it will be a great tool. Um, but you also have an escape hatch by having this sort of monorepo structure if you do go down that route to be able to take that and maybe put it in an XJS app if you need to do that at some point. And SEO becomes like a cream of the crop for you, becomes the most important thing in your project. So um, it was definitely a learning experience for us because, you know, taking an expert router app to, to production, especially for web, um, I think is, is I don't want to say unheard of, but it's very rare, probably. 
I don't know. I don't... Yes, I, I I have not heard about the Expo uh, yeah. uh, Expo Router on web in production app yet. Yeah. So uh, thanks for that. Uh, <laughs> we will definitely learn learn from it. Uh, you mentioned Repack, and before we recorded the episode, definitely not now, but I consulted uh, Rafix and uh, Jacob from our team who are maintainers of Repack about like how would you approach using Repack? Because Repack is not uh, not for everyone. You have to have a use case for Repack in order yeah, for you to, to use it in your mobile app. Uh, but then I, I asked them, how about, okay, so I have a use case in my mobile app to use Repack. Um, how about code share with Repack? So they basically said that Repack is basically just a few loaders and plugins for Webpack. Uh, so you could have a different configuration for for web, and then you can share a lot of the configuration, but uh, you should not and you cannot use the loaders and plugins that are required for mobile in the yeah. web. That's all. Yeah. So y- you can benefit from having Webpack on, on the web and then using very similar configuration on mobile if you want to. Yeah, yeah. and I think... I think for certain use cases, like you mentioned, it's it's very useful. Like some some cases, you will need module federation, or you need you know dynamic imports in prod, which you won't be able to get with yeah. Metro. Um, so I think that's those are all very interesting use cases um, to, to consider if you if you need that in your app. Yeah. So I think that's all. That's not all. Let's <laughs> let let me let me go back to this. That's not all. We we'd have to. Uh, talk for one hour more to to really flesh out all of the choices and all of the yeah, technical difficulties in in projects like that. But what what's important is that I want to say it is possible to yeah. create production applications like streaming applications and whatnot with React Native and with some level of code sharing, with high level of code sharing. Yeah. And it all depends on your... Uh, use case and on your limitations that you have from your client yeah and i think it's a it's there's exciting times ahead i think i i i was excited to do this episode with you lukash because you know i think there's a lot of hype around universal apps but until you get into the nitty-gritty and talk about what is the day-to-day like people won't see it as a reality and i think i'm a big proponent of this i see this as a incredible technology um but i think we need to to, to talk about the, the, the whole picture and I think that will drive us and propel us forward and I, I, the the future is very exciting the future yeah. with universal apps is very exciting I think the sa- uh, I think the same way okay uh, right now I'd like to wrap it up it was a great episode I really enjoyed it I really enjoyed lo- uh, talking about React Native multi-platform and code sharing like I said in the beginning this is our bread and butter this is the the main reason why we do React Native in the first place to get the benefits, to to get the time to market, to get get the kind of code sharing and knowledge transfer between developers. Um, recap of the episode. Today, we discussed building universal apps with, with React Native. We talked about the path uh, of React Native to multi-platform from sometimes bumpy past to present day possibilities. And we discussed real-life challenges and opportunities uh, of building a universal streaming platform. So, Mo, I want to thank you really much for being an amazing guest and for sharing your experience with multi-platform development. Thank you, Lukash, for hosting. Uh, very, very happy to be here and uh, hopefully some more in the future. Yeah, definitely. And uh, also, I want to thank everyone that uh, listened until this point. Please share your experience with multi-platform development and sign up for Callstack's newsletter for developers and tech leaders to get the top-notch tech and business content, including information about this podcast. Thank you. (laughs) 